0: Hello and welcome to the Emanuel Church London catch-up service. Thank you so much for joining us. We have a passion to present Jesus to London and would love for you to be part of the adventure. So why not say hello to us by visiting our website, EmanuelChurchLondon.org, so we can get back to you and say a bit more of a personal Hello. looked at the Bible in the last few weeks around this whole theme of the miracle of Jesus, I felt like, seriously, what words can I bring that would do anything compared to what God has said about himself in the Bible? But I know that preaching is a gift. I know that teaching is a gift to the church and God actually wants us to explain the Bible and not just read it. And I know there are some of you here that will feel like, I don't get what these verses mean. So if you just read them to me, I'm going to zone out. So what we're going to do is we're going to have a Bible-soaked half an hour together of Scripture, but I'm going to unpack things as we go along. Um, And so I want to just encourage you to come with an open heart. The voice you want to hear today is not my voice. The voice you want to hear is the voice of God Himself speaking into your heart through His Word And so that's who we're coming to. We're coming to Jesus, the word, and we're asking him to speak. So let's make that our prayer right now. Let's just pray. Lord Jesus, you are the word. We are so blessed that we get to read this word, that we get to have it printed on pages, that we get to have it on apps, on our phones, on our laptops, on our every single device we could think of, that we can listen to it, that we can have people creatively illustrate it, that we can have people act it out to us, that we can have people turn it into songs and hymns and worship. But Lord God, in all of it, we want to meet you in it. We want to see you in the middle of it. And so that's our prayer this morning. We come here. We're sitting in this Odeon cinema screen and we're saying, mighty God, speak through your word. Come and show yourself. Holy Spirit of wisdom and Holy Spirit of revelation, be in this place right now. Amen. Okay, let's start with some scripture. Isaiah 9 goes like this. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You've increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they're glad when they divide spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor you have broken, as on the day of Midian, For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us, a king is born. To us, a ruler is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. John 1, in the beginning was the word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we've seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God, but God the only God who's at the Father's side, he has made him known. These two passages are two of my favourite passages in the Bible. One comes from the Old Testament, prophesied hundreds of years before Christ's birth. The other one comes from the New Testament, right at the beginning of the Gospel of John, written by one of the disciples who was with Jesus in his life, describing the eternal plan of God to send his son on the earth. And what we're going to look at today as part of our series on the miracles of Jesus is we're going to look at the miracle of Jesus. We're going to look at the miracle of the incarnation. Now, the word incarnation is probably familiar to most of you, but if you're not a Latin scholar and you don't know where it came from, I'll give you a little bit of a hint. In means into. That's a good one to know, isn't it? And carn or caro is the word for flesh. The, The word incarnation is the way that we describe a spirit or deity being embodied into human flesh. Taking something that is supernatural and spiritual and actually it being embodied, represented within something that is earthly and natural, a human body. And John 1 tells us that Jesus was the Word who became flesh and made his dwelling among us. There's a version of the Bible called the message, which is like a kind of very colloquial, kind of modern translation, kind of paraphrase. And in that one, the author has taken the phrase in the original language and he says the word, instead of writing became flesh, he said, moved into the neighbourhood. It's like God turned up living in your neighbourhood. Except I think it's more than that because I've got neighbours and, you know, there's a wall that separates us. And I know kind of some of the things that they get up to in their lives, but not that much. And hopefully vice versa, though I have a feeling they may be a little bit more aware of things that go on in our house than we are in theirs. But God didn't come and live next door. God came to live in. God entered fully into the human race. God, this is the mystery of the incarnation, that the sovereign, eternal spirit God, who has always been the one who was there in the beginning, that he entered in to flesh that he identified with us, that he became one of us. In the 90s, there was a song, most of you sadly, well, a lot of you are too young to know this song, but some of you might remember that Joan Osborne wrote a song. In fact, she didn't write a song. She recorded a song that was written by somebody else that was called, What If God Was One Of Us? And the lyrics go like this. If God had a name, what would it be? And would you call it to his face? If you were faced with him in all his glory, what would you ask if you had just one question? And the chorus went, what if God was one of us? Just a slob like one of us, just a stranger on the bus trying to make his way home. That was a catchy tune. It was a chart topping hit. It was in 95, so a lot of you will be like, 1995, when was that? But in 1995, I remember singing that song. I was a brand new Christian. And I kind of thought it was amazing that loads of us were singing along to this song that describes the doctrine of the incarnation. It was on the radio. It wasn't on YouTube because we didn't watch YouTube in those days because, you know, we lived in caves and had like, you know, slate to write on. But people went around singing and talking about this song. What if God was one of us? The doctrine of the incarnation is he is one of us. It's already happened. It's not a poetic idea. It's a reality. And Hebrews 2 tells us that Jesus became so like us that he could call us a brother, that he shared in the same flesh that we have, the same same experience of humanity. He was like the ultimate empath. Okay, If you think of it in therapy terms, Jesus knows what you're going through because he's been there. God turned up in the neighbourhood, entered in, fully to human experience and therefore can say, I know what it's like to experience what you experience. He knows what it's like to experience hunger, thirst, exhaustion, confusion, to experience loneliness, to experience community, to experience joy, to experience excitement. He has experienced the range of human emotions that we all have. He's walked through grief. He's walked through delay. He's walked through expectation. He's walked through disappointment. He has walked through every experience. He has watched people that he loves struggle. He has watched successes. He's watched failures. He's been there. He's walked in it. He is the ultimate empath. He literally knows what it feels like to be clothed in flesh and blood. Okay? He didn't act it out. It wasn't like an actor who, like, you know, came on to play a part and read his lines and wore a costume and pretended to be a man. The doctrine of the Incarnation is that Jesus is a man. And I say is, and I don't say was on purpose, because the Bible doesn't say. God came as a man and then when he'd sorted that out and dealt with it, he got rid of that and he went back to being God. The Bible says, now, today, in heaven, there is a man, a man with a resurrection body who's the firstborn from the dead. He's the first of a whole new race of people who are born in his likeness, who are men and women who are born like him, born as children of God. And so the incarnation is incredibly complex for us to unpack. And there's no way that I could do it justice in... 20 minutes or 40 minutes or three hours or three years or, you know, like all my life. If I studied the doctrine of the Incarnation, I could stand up here Sunday after Sunday after Sunday and I'd be able to bring something new and fresh and significant about the Incarnation. But you'll be pleased to know that I won't attempt that. That all we'll do instead is drill into one aspect just one kind of facet, as it were, of the diamond. We'll just take one side and we'll take a look at what God can say to us through the Incarnation. See, most of you I know, right? You're good Christians, a lot of you. You've done church for years. It's December. You're expecting your Incarnation Sermon. You know, it's like it's on your Advent calendar. If you've been in a manual church, you're actually expecting Livy Gibbs to preach an incarnation sermon because that's kind of one of the things that I often do. In fact, just last night I was with a friend and she said, oh, I remember you preaching on the incarnation a few years ago. And then we kind of worked out and we're like, oh, probably about 10 years ago. We know about the incarnation. We kind of sing it. It's in the carols. It's in the lessons. It's in the readings. It's like it's on the nativity. In fact, we kind of know it so much that we're almost a bit over familiar with it. You know, like, you know, like when you walk along a street that you've walked on hundreds of times and you kind of know all the buildings. And then one day you walk along and someone goes, what's that building? And you go, "Huh? Oh, I don't know. I've never noticed that building before. Has it always been there? I don't know. I've walked past it all the time. It's possible to get like that about God becoming a man. It's just like it's so familiar and it's so kind of part of the Christian story and it's so part of the Christmas story. But you know what I've noticed is when we think about Jesus as a man... We always think about him as an adult. For 11 months of the year, when you're thinking about the the humanity of Christ, you think about the moments in the Bible in his adult life. And and there's good reason for that, right? Because the four Gospels, the four stories of Jesus' life, mainly deal with, if you were to kind of like work out what part of his life they're talking about, they mainly cover age 30 to 33. And there's not actually that much airtime for anything between the age of about 12 and 30, And there's not much between about 2 and 12 either. So we tend to think of Jesus as a man. But I think one of the reasons we do that is because when we're trying to understand the idea that God could become man, the easiest way to kind of wrap our heads around the difficulty that we have with God becoming man is to try and find evidence of when he looked most like God. So if you're trying to think, okay, so if you're telling me that God, the supernatural spirit God, the creator of the world became a person, I'm going to find that easiest to access if I can see him looking a bit like God. You know, like maybe doing something really impressive, like, I don't know, opening a blind person's eyes or unblocking deaf ears, or like raising someone from the dead, or feeding a crowd of 5,000 people out of like, you know, a couple of loaves and some fish, or speaking to the wind and the waves and telling them to be quiet. All the miracles that we've been looking at for the last few weeks. That's where we see the incarnation makes the most sense to us. Because even though he's a man and he's limited, and we kind of find ourselves struggling, at least we can see evidence of power And might and glory and strength and supernatural breakthroughs and a kind of like, oh yeah, underneath the flesh, the spirit is breaking out and he's doing things that other human beings can't do because he's the God man. But today I want to take you away from that and I want to take you back to the way that God first introduced us to his son. Because he didn't arrive age 30, the finished article. He didn't turn up, scholared in the scriptures, like already ready to go, like the ready-made, you know, the kind of like prepped in the background, delivered on the day, ready to go, saviour of the world. You know how he came? He came as a bunch of cells that had to multiply a gazillion times. When we were at university, Stu and I, Stu studied physiology, which is a really useful degree. And I studied English literature, which I think is useful, but I'm not sure exactly what for. But he used to come out of his lectures on embryology and say to me, Oh my goodness, I was worshiping in my lecture. And I'd be like, Explain that to me. He said, because I just learned about embryology. I just learned the tiniest first bit about embryology, and I'm going, what is this that God has made? And I remember when we first got pregnant, I got pregnant, and we, had, we got some books on kind of babies in the womb. And I was like, this is amazing. How does this happen? I mean, how does anyone get pregnant? It's an absolute mystery to me. So many things have to be exactly right. By the way, don't try and explain to me how people get pregnant. I do actually know that. <laughs> Lest you are thinking, oh, dear, we have an issue on our hands. I mean, how do we come from that? Then think... How does God enter that? How does God, the creator of all things, subject himself willingly to become a baby in a womb? But that is what he does. And that is what he did in his son. Pretty much every other religion that would believe in the doctrine of some kind of incarnation, whether that's like, Greek theory with kind of like, you know, Zeus and Apollo and the gods who could kind of come to earth and be like men and appear as men, or whether it's Hinduism and gods of creation who can also kind of walk on the earth, gods of thunder and lightning and storms, or whether it's other philosophies, pretty much every religion that has any kind of incarnation theory connected to it has a god who is revealed in strength and glory and might and power and is spectacular and impressive and is clearly like above and beyond all that he has made. Only the God of the Bible, only our God, only Jesus comes in absolute fragility, in vulnerability. Just think for a minute about a baby in a womb. Think about how needy, A baby in a womb is. Think about how dependent a baby in a womb is. Gabriel came to Mary and he said, You're going to conceive in your womb and you're going to bear a son and you're going to call him Jesus. He'll be great and he's going to be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord's going to give him the throne of his father David and he's going to reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there's going to be no end. It's like it echoes Isaiah 9, you can hear it. If we read that too quickly, we just skip over the very first sentence. In your womb. God's going to come in your womb. Psalm 139 says, You formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame wasn't hidden from you when I was being made in secret. When I was intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance. That's how God made me. That's how God made you. That's how God made Jesus. In the womb. You know, Mary's pregnancy was a real pregnancy. When she was you know, when, when, she, like, when she was lying in bed with a big bump, she needed a wee. That was a real baby pushing on her bladder. When they went off to Bethlehem and she had to travel on donkey or however she ended up getting there, walking donkey, that, that, she was really uncomfortable because she was like eight months pregnant. That was a real baby in there who pushed under her ribs and kicked her and probably gave her morning sickness and made her hormones go up and down and left and right and, oh, goodness me. The Bible says he's the image of the invisible God, That baby. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. We read it earlier. He's the beginning. He's the firstborn from the dead. That In everything he'll be preeminent. In him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Hebrews 1 says that he is the one whom God appointed the heir of all things, through whom he made the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God and he's the exact imprint of God's nature And he upholds the universe by the word of his power, but he started like this. The incarnation is completely mysterious. It blows our minds. If you stop long enough and pause and sit with it, it's totally mind bending. How can a God who made everything be made? How can an an eternal universe-creating God subject himself to the fragility that he needs his oxygen and all his nutrients and all his fluids to be supplied by somebody else's body that he made? How can he depend on her for oxygen when he created oxygen? And yet that's what the incarnation tells us. God was willing to enter in to such weakness, to such vulnerability, to such fragility that he was willing to come to that place where he, he had such needs. I mean, think for a minute about babies. No offence to my lovely children who are in this room, but children suck the life out of you. They, I mean, from the minute you conceive a baby, right, they steal all the best food that you eat to make sure that they grow healthy. They take all your food once once they're born as well and you spend all your energy making more of it for them. They they take all your time because they wake you up in the night and they need you to do everything for them. I mean, spend a little bit of time with a parent of a toddler or a baby and you'll see the bags under their eyes. You'll see the harassed experience that they have navigating their pushchair around busy shops, dealing with everything. The mother and father's role is is like every job you can ever think of rolled into one for no pay. Okay? They are like nurses and doctors, they are teachers, they are counsellors, they are judges, they are referees, they are cleaners, laundry service people, chefs. They do everything for this baby. This child is completely dependent upon their parents. And that's God's design. That's God's design for us, that we would be that ourselves and then we would enable, he would enable many of us to be that for someone else, to become a parent or a carer. And then we get the pleasure of watching other generations come after us. But God entered into his own design. But get this, not as a parent, God entered his own design as a needy baby. God embraced neediness. We, we don't like neediness, do we? Like if someone's needy, that is not a compliment, okay? You know, you're someone who says, oh, she's so needy. That means, that means she's whiny, she's insecure, she, she's like constantly needing you to reply to her text messages or like her, don't air her because she's so needy. She needs to get affirmation. Like you've got to make sure you get exactly the right present, otherwise she'll be really offended. Like we don't like neediness. We're, we're pretty rude, actually, about people who are weak. We're pretty intolerant of weakness. I mean, we might not let people know how rude we are about it because, you know, we've got social airs and graces and we know how to have etiquette. But the reality is, in the human race, we don't really like neediness and weakness. We like strength. My boys, they've got a friend who they don't know really well, but they've known him a bit from a distance from afar. He's actually the son of some friends of ours. They know his name. You know, they could pick him out of a crowd. They could play football with him. They could say hi to him at Newdale or something. But do you know what they know about him? he benches 80 kg. Now, for some of you are like, what does that mean? Okay, I'll just, I'll just quickly bring you up to date with the latest important factor, features of life. What can you bench press in the gym? I just, you know, it's just worth knowing what you can bench press because this guy, apparently, he's only 15, apparently he benches 80 kg. He is impressive. They describe what he's built like. They describe the shape of him. Like, I can't even use some of the adjectives that they would use to describe what he's like. But this is how he's known. He is strong. That's what our culture celebrates. We celebrate strength. We celebrate power. We celebrate dominance. You know, we celebrate, we we have this concept of the survival of the fittest, not because somebody made it up, because that's what it seems to be true. That strong things survive. That capable people go far. In fact, our whole education system for, for, for children, raising children from down here up to adulthood is built on the idea you want to be as strong as you can, as good as you can, because you'll go as far as you can. Whether that's academically or in sport or in music or in friendship and popularity, it's all about your ability. Harness your, your true self. Find who you really are and, and become the best version of yourself you can be in strength, with influence, with, 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 a, with a kind of... a resourcefulness of your own. You know, learn this subject so you can prove your mark in a test, so you can show your ability. You've got it. Don't, you don't need to, don't, don't ask other people for help. Get it yourself. Even, in, even to the extent that we actually school ourselves in the idea that our ultimate goal is to become independent, to not be needy. Like we make that our goal. We, we have, we have we've accepted the idea that we start as babies, yep, and we're needy, and someone has to change our nappy, but we certainly don't expect that to still be happening when we're five or 10 or 15. And we expect to need people to show us how to do things, so like you know, you teach a, ch- a child how to tie their laces, but you don't expect to be tying the laces of your 26-year-old best friend. And we expect to have to start in vulnerability. But we think that the aim is to grow into maturity, into adulthood. You know, like one of my children is nearly old enough to leave home, and that's a sign that, you know, you, people say to me, oh, you've made it. You know, he's gone all the way through, ready to manage his own money and choose somewhere to live, and all these decisions, like, you know, reached adulthood, reached maturity. Doesn't need you anymore, does he? Ha 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 ha. We have to be really careful in our understanding of Christian faith that we don't transplant that onto faith. The Bible does say that we're born as children of God, that we start as babies in the faith. In fact, there's metaphors in the New Testament. There's teaching about how we get fed milk, not solid food, and how we start with, we, we grow like children. We grow from being born again. You know, Jesus said to Nicodemus at one point in, in when he met him, he said, you must be born again. You've got to start again. You've got to start as a baby of the faith. And we do want to grow, of course we do. And we want to mature and we want to know more and learn more and we want to understand more and we want to actually become those who have got more kind of, um, as it were, like our eyes have been opened and we're wiser and more knowledgeable and we like it when we kind of feel like, I get this now, I've made it to somewhere. But we have to be really, really careful that we don't blur physiological, psychological, emotional growth into thinking that maturity is independence. The incarnation won't let us do that because the Jesus we see who's a baby in the womb, the weak one, who becomes a child and grows and learns how to tie his shoelaces and how to read his Aramaic letters and how to you know, understand the ways of the world and respond to social situations and do all the things that we t- train children to do, that same Jesus, when he's an adult, is not independent of his parent. He's not. Because everything you see him do as an adult, the Bible says he does because of what his father is doing through him. Every miracle, every extraordinary moment of looking like God as the God-man, he does dependent on the power and presence of the Spirit who anoints him. He is fully God and fully man at the same time, all the time, completely dependent. I filled in a form recently and I got asked the question, how many dependents are there in your house? And you know, you go, "Oh, oh, uh, one, two, oh ooh, there's three now, not four. Used to be four. Now I have to put three because one of them is not a dependent anymore. Though he does still seem to depend on us for a lot of stuff and we do buy all of his food. So I think you should still count as a dependent if you're eating the food from your parents' cupboards. Anyway, I tick the box to say three dependents an interesting question, isn't it? How many dependents have you got? How many people depend on you? How many dependents does God have on his box? A bit of you wants to say, everyone, right? Everyone. Everyone's dependent on God. You can't breathe if he doesn't give you oxygen in your lungs. You can't wake up in the morning if God hasn't brought you alive in that morning. But the reality is how many of us live like dependents on God? How many of us live like, you know what? I'm a dependent in the house of God. Yes, I might be a grown-up. I might have children. I might have a mortgage. I might have a really important job. I might have loads of gifts and strengths and skills and abilities. I might have loads of things I can do. But you know what? I'm weak because it's how I've been made. Because he, the God-man, was weak. People sometimes say to me, Jesus was so holy because he prayed all the time. I said, Jesus prayed all the time because he had to pray. He had to get with his father every day. To live as a man, Jesus needed everything he could get from his father. That's what we need. How much do you pray? I don't mean how many prayer meetings do you come to or like, you know, I mean, how much is your disposition? I need you, God. I need you for my job. I need you for my health. I need you for my relationships. I need you to make good decisions. I need you to guard my mouth. I need you for my friendships. I need you for my house. I need you for this church. I need you for my family members that I relate to. I need you so that I can actually think straight. I need you so that I can walk in truth. I need you so that I can fulfill the things that you've called me to do. How do we live like that? Because that is living like a dependent. That is living in the light of the incarnation. That is knowing Jesus was frail and fragile as a baby, yes. But he never grew out of being dependent on God. And the glory, John 1 says, we've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only. What is his glory? Is his glory that he was weak and a baby? No. His glory is that the reason why he was weak and a baby. His glory is what it says in Hebrews when it describes why he was made like us in every way. His glory is that he shared in our flesh and blood. It says in Hebrews 2 since the children share in flesh and blood, that's us, he himself likewise partook of the same things. He became like us in every way. He literally experienced what we experience in our humanity. Why? That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil and deliver all those who through fear of death are subject to lifelong slavery. The Bible tells us that Jesus was born so that he could live and die. We sing it in some of the Christmas carols that we're going to sing this afternoon. By the way, Christmas carols are the most profound sermons on the gospel you will ever hear. I pray that when you sing carols, you sing them and you go, whoa, What did I just sing? Because they are remarkable little mini sermons on the gospel. But we sing about this baby born to live that he may die. Born that man no more may die. Born to give us second birth. Born to raise the sons of earth. Hark, the herald angels sing. Of course they would sing. Wow! Who wouldn't sing that God would send Himself, that the Son would come as a baby, born and experience everything that we've talked about—nappies and vomit and being a toddler and having to learn how to read and write and making friends and people misunderstanding Him and growing up and adolescence. Oh my goodness, Jesus was an adolescent. I mean, there's hope, people. Jesus knows what it's like to be a teenager. Teenagers, Jesus gets it because He's been there. He's dealt with acne and He's dealt with the thing of girls and. Boys. and all that rubbish. I mean, he didn't deal with social media, but to be fair, if it had been around at the time, he'd have dealt with it. And he went into adulthood and he understands fully what it is to be a human man. He gets it. Why is it glorious? Not just because he did it, but the reason why he did it. So that he would taste death for everyone. So that he would become what Hebrews describes as the one who could destroy the one who has the power of death that he would deliver us out of slavery to death. And it says, it says, therefore, he had to be made like us in every respect. He had to be just like us. He had to be fully like us. He had to be frail like us. He had to be weak like us. He had to be limited like us. He had to be restricted like us so that he could go to his father on our behalf and say, see this life, I've done it. I've lived it. I've walked it, I've tasted it, I've endured it, I've suffered in it. Now, Father, take my perfect life and count it as his and hers and theirs take my living, take my humanity, take what I just did for 33 years, the bit in the womb and all the bits since. Take this moment on the cross, take it all, take my righteous living and put it in front of all of these others who are also living and count my life instead of theirs. Count my living. Let my version of being a man be the version that you look at. Then it says, He had to be made like us in every respect so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest to make propitiation for the sins of his people. He had to do it so he could go to God, the Father, and say, I'm making it right. I'm making it right for all of them. That's why his glory is in the incarnation. And that's what we're going to do when we take communion now. We're going we're to open this little pod and we're going to peel off the lid and we're going to find that little wafer. And it's not a very good representation of his body, is it? Let's be honest. But we're going to hold it in our fingertips and we're going to think about this is his body. The real human body of Jesus Christ was on the earth and was broken and busted up big time for us. And this little cup of whatever it is, red grape juice or something, I don't know, it tastes horrible, but that thing that we drink, this is representing blood, real blood, like blood with platelets and, and, you know, T-cells, blood like you've got in your body, but holy blood, perfect blood, blood that represented purity. And it was spilt and it was poured out and it flowed on the ground and they could all see it at the cross. I mean, we get these sanitized views of the cross because he looks clean and tidy. The guy was a bloody mess. It was pouring down his face. The flesh on his back was ripped to shreds. And it wasn't just that he was physically a mess. He was spiritually a mess. He was taking the wrath of God. He was taking the anguish of all the guilt of sin and he was standing in front of his father and he was saying, I'm giving up my perfect human life that I just lived. I'm exchanging it. I'm taking all the rubbish versions. I'm taking all the broken versions. I'm taking the stuff that is so disgusting that it makes our skin crawl when we hear about it on the news or we read it in a newspaper article. I'm taking the evil of this race. I'm taking the bombs they drop on each other. I'm taking the violence they commit to one another. I'm taking the rape. I'm taking the sex abuse. I'm taking the immorality. I'm taking the lying. I'm taking the power hungry godlessness that is in this human race. And I'm going to stand in front of you, Father, and I'm going to carry it. And he didn't look good. He didn't look good. That's what we celebrate when we take that little cup and that little wafer and we put it in our mouths and we put it in our bodies and we say, I need you, God. We say, I'm your dependent. That's what we're doing when we take communion. We are communing with the one who we need. Let's do that now. Let's stand together. Let's get our little cups out. If the band want to come up, we're going to sing. I want to encourage you. If you are sitting here this morning thinking, I don't like the idea of being weak. I want to encourage you to come to God with that and admit it. I prefer to be strong. I prefer to be independent. No, God, I'm not very prayerful because I do spend a lot of the week thinking that I can do it all myself. Confess that to God as you take this cup in your fingers. If you're not a Christian here today, if you're not someone who's put your trust in Jesus, please don't take this cup. Please stop and think about what it is that we're explaining and what we're singing about. Come and talk to one of us at the end. We would love to explain more to you to help you understand what does it mean to take the body and the blood, to take this little bit of wafer and this bit of juice and to say, I'm part of this. I'd love to encourage you to say to Jesus, thank you for becoming just like me. Now teach me what that means. Holy Spirit, open my eyes. To understand what it means that you became flesh and dwelt among us. Father, we come right now and we just are amazed, absolutely amazed that you would send your son as a baby and that Jesus, you would embrace weakness and Jesus, you would embrace vulnerability and dependency. And that you would live a life of leaning on God to show us how to live. We need you, Jesus. That's why we're taking communion. We need you. Thank you, God.